0: Alright, so before we get into the actual business of doing philosophy and reading philosophers and all that other philosophical stuff that you're looking forward to in this class, we need to take a little bit, like one week, one lecture, um, and talk about some of the ground rules. How does philosophy work? Obviously, I do not have enough time to get into a whole battery of discussion on the subject of formal logic. Um, If you want to take a logic course, which I highly recommend, it will make your life way better um, and make, at the very least, standardized test taking way easier, um, go do that. Go take a formal logic course, get familiar with this stuff um, in much more depth and much more detail. Um, But today, for this particular lecture, I want to sort of go over some of the basics. Um Which a lot of that has been covered in the videos, which I do want to go over. But I also want to talk about just some of the stuff we're going to be running into in this class on a regular basis, the sort of forms of arguments, um, the kind of arguments that we'll be seeing over and over again, um, and exactly how to interpret them, to read them, to understand them, and for that matter, to use them. Um, because like the goal of this particular little class, as well as the whole philosophy class in general, um, on some level is to, to help you become better reasoners in your own right, to help you to make better arguments, um, to turn you into better uh, thinkers in that sense. So first I want to look at that critical thinking video. Um, like what is critical thinking? How do you make an argument? Those sorts of things. Um, and I'm sure that it was pretty basic. Like the weird thing about logic and a lot of philosophy in general is that it is sort of formalizing everything that you already know already, Um, and in that sense may seem a little superfluous, uh, dumb or unnecessary. Um, But I do want to sort of stress these basic points and sort of divide up arguments, um, first between the sound and unsound, the valid and the invalid, um, but also I want to stress that distinction that they make in the video between um, the ampliative and the deductive argument, because we will be running into that quite a bit as well. Um, So, first off, let me stress, um, it's not always easy to tell when somebody is giving you bad argumentation for their, you know, for their beliefs. Um, Obviously, anyone who has spent any amount of time on the internet for the last four years or more has seen a gigantic mess of bad arguments. Um, Like i cannot emphasize enough how the internet didn't used to be like this folks um like there were always trolls and there was always bad argumentation and there was always stupidity that's that's definitely a thing but it has absolutely ramped up um since you know terrible argumentation has become mainstream and sort of a rhetorical tool in its own right over the last four or five years um so let's stress instead what a good argument looks like um what you need in order to make a good argument work and then we will turn our attention to sort of the various kinds of bad arguments later in this session um so first off as the video stresses a good argument is one that properly supports the conclusion um the premises the things that make up your argument um encourage and strengthen your belief in whatever the conclusion may be. So the example used in the video is the woman who says that Monty is not going to be at the party this evening, and she has her three arguments. Argument one: um, I don't like Monty, and I want to have a good time. Argument two: uh, Monty's really shy; he very rarely goes to parties. Um, argument three: Monty's in Beijing and cannot possibly arrive from Beijing on time for the party. Um, so. As the video points out, Argument 1 is just bad, like it doesn't work. There is nothing in the premises to support the conclusion. Um, unless, as the video pointed out, she was responsible for the invitations, in which case she needs to say that, or else there's no reason to believe in what she has to say. The fact of the matter is, whether or not she likes Monty is not going to bear any difference on whether or not Monty is going to show up. Like, Monty might not know that she doesn't like him. Monty might not care that she doesn't like him. Monty might not know she's even coming to this thing. Like, who the heck knows? Um... But it certainly doesn't have any influence on the chain of causes that will bring Monty to this party if, in fact, he is going to go there. Um, And that's one of the key things that you're going to see repeated in a lot of arguments. Um, You will see sort of cause and effect being manipulated, or transformed, or completely misunderstood um, in a lot of bad arguments. Um, The assumption that we are making as rational human beings is that effects have causes. Monty's appearance at the party will be because Monty gets a ride to the party because Monty wants to go to the party because you know the party is within walking distance of Monty's place, any number of things, um, and we should interrogate those causes. We should inquire why does Monty want to or not want to go to the party? Um, what? obstacles prevent him from getting here, and what things make it more likely to happen. Um, But whatever that chain of causes is, the important thing here is that her choosing, like, her liking Monty does not enter into the equation. Um, Monty's chain of causality is completely independent from this, and therefore Monty's choice will have no bearing on whether or not she wants him to be there. Um, but the other two arguments are sound, for different reasons. Um, first off, we have the Monty is really shy and rarely goes to parties. Um, and the video stresses that this is an ampliative argument. Um, I have also heard it called an inductive argument. There is a sort of slight distinction between those two terms, but for our purposes, we can call them the same thing. Um an ampliative argument makes it more likely that the conclusion is true, but does not guarantee the conclusion. Um, The premises make it increased likely, you should believe it more, um, but it doesn't guarantee it. It's not 100%. It's not set in stone, no possibility of it being otherwise. Um, Because, you know, Monty might have an epiphany. This might be the day that Monty decides to go to the party regardless. Maybe there's somebody who Monty is interested in dating at the party, and as a result he is going to make an extra effort to be there. Or maybe Monty's roommate is kicking him out for the night for other reasons, and Monty's like, well damn, I guess I don't have anywhere better to go at this point. Um, There could be any number of things that ultimately spur Monty to go, but it is unlikely if Monty is shy, and Monty rarely goes to parties, then it seems unlikely that this is going to be the party where Monty finally you know, decides to, decides to show up. Um, so, again, it's a good argument. It has a solid set of premises that make the conclusion more likely, but in all likelihood, at the end of the day, it's not perfect. It's not guaranteed. Monty might still show up at the party. Um, By contrast, the deductive argument, Monty's in China and there is no possible way to get here before uh, in time for the party, that is a deductive argument, a 100% guarantee. Um, If the premises are true, then they guarantee the truth of the conclusion. Um, But notice what the premises are in this case, because I want to stress this. Um, oftentimes when you are faced with, like, this is 100% true, there is no way to avoid it, like, we as human beings are like, dude, there must be a hole in this. Like, there's must be a way around it, there must be some clever solution, some way to thread the needle. Um, and I've had my this conversation with my students in, in years past, and frequently they'll be like, well, what if China has teleportation technology? Or what if, like, Monty, you know, is zapped there by magic? Or, like, what if Monty somehow makes it from China to here, or maybe Monty isn't even in China, like that's a bad report. What I want to stress is that the way the premises relate to their conclusion is kind of indifferent to the truth or falsity of the premises, which is something that the video stresses, but I want to stress even more. The assumption being made by this argument Um, The two premises of this argument, that one, Monty is in China, and two, it is impossible to get from China to here in time for the party, those can be true or false without changing the validity of the argument. Um, Whether or not Monty is in China, it doesn't matter. If he is, and it's impossible to get here on time, then he won't be at the party. Likewise, if he is in China, but there is some way of getting from China to here in time for the party, that would just make the second premise false, in the same way that Monty actually being in America and his reports of being in China are greatly exaggerated would make the first premise false. If both premises are true, that Monty is in China and that there is no way to get from China to here in time for the party, then the conclusion must be true. That's all the that an argument says. Um, and you'll see that in the, in the video on informal fall- fallacies. Uh, the philosopher there uses the example of Tamar Gendler. If Tamar Gendler is a philosopher, then she has published articles in philosophy. Tamar Gendler is a philosopher, therefore she has published articles in philosophy. If she's a train conductor, the argument still holds. It's just one of the premises is false, and therefore the conclusion may be true or false as a result. It's no longer guaranteed. All that we're saying with any argument... Is that if all the premises are true, the conclusion must either be more likely in an ampliative argument or be guaranteed in a deductive argument. And the key word in this China argument about Monty is that word impossible. It is impossible for Monty to get from China to the party on time. Um. If it is, in fact, impossible, then that makes this argument deductive. It is saying it is binary. It is either true or false. It is one or the other. There is no wiggle room, no ambiguity. Unlike the Monty rarely goes to parties in the ampliative argument, this says Monty cannot possibly be at the party. And therefore, if it's the case, that means that it's a deductive argument that it's either 100% true or 100% false. Um, Since the premises support the conclusion, if the premises are true, the conclusion must necessarily, 100% of the time, be true. Now, this is about the argument's form. And while we are here talking about different kinds of argument structures, I want to sort of break them down even further, because there are different kinds, different forms of arguments that we're going to see come up over and over and over again. Um, And these do not necessarily, like, lie along the line of the ampliative-deductive distinction, but they are sort of like subcategories of arguments that, you know, the form is common enough that it's worth talking about. Um, And the first form of argument that we're going to be running into a lot because it's particularly uh, preferred among the ancient Greeks and Plato especially, is an argument form known as the categorical argument. Um, A categorical argument is an argument that deals in, logically enough, categories. Um, The famous example, the one that everybody uses, is premise one, all men are mortal. Um, This is basically just saying that men die. That's it. All men are mortal. Premise two, Socrates is a man. Therefore, the conclusion, Socrates is mortal. Now notice the structure of this argument. First off, this is a deductive argument. If it is true that all men are mortal, and if it is true that Socrates is a man, then it must also be true that that Socrates is mortal. Um, But notice the way that it works. What we're basically saying is there's this overarching category. Men. And admittedly, this is inclusive. Like, it's men and women. This is the old form of the argument. So I apologize to the ladies listening. Um, In this category of human beings, all of the beings in this category, all of the objects, all of the things in this category have this one characteristic of being mortal. They die. Um, this means if you are in this category, then you must have this characteristic. That's all that the first premise states. All X have Y characteristic. And therefore, when you go on and say this particular individual, Socrates, belongs to category X, he is a man, then he must necessarily have that same characteristic. He must be mortal. All X are Y, Socrates is X, therefore Socrates is Y. That's the basic, like, most boiled-down version of the categorical argument. And we will see it a lot. We will see it adapted in various different forms. We will see it, like, manipulated all kinds of ways. Um, But I want to stress, this is a very basic form in logical reasoning. It is something we're going to run up against again and again and again. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle all loved this form of argument. They all stressed it a lot. Um, And for good reason. For one thing, it allows for a deductive argument. In fact, encourages it, although not all categorical arguments will be deductive. We can talk about that in a moment. Um, But it also has a very simple, straightforward structure it's basically the same kind of categorical reasoning that you see in your geometry classes, which, you know, I'm sure that I bring up geometry, and many of you are having flashbacks right now. But let's think about that, because that's actually the model that Plato is working with. Um, Euclid, the originator of the... Ge- of like planar geometry the guy who first set down things like you know Pythagoras's theorem although that was technically Pythagoras he just adopted it um the fact the five postulates like the whole question of like do parallel lines cross or not cross um all of those formulas and theorems and postulates that you talk about and use in your proofs in geometry class all of that logical structure was very much pioneered by Euclid and Socrates admired it. Socrates and Plato used that same form of reasoning in talking about deeper, bigger, and more abstract things than pure lines and numbers. But think of the way that we talk about shapes. Um, Like if I say square, I can ask you what is a square? And you have a decent idea. Well, it is a four-sided figure. All of the sides are of equal length, and all of the angles are, of, are equal. They are all 90 degrees. Um, but we also have square as a subcategory. All squares are rectangles. All rectangles are parallelograms. All parallelograms are quadrilaterals, and so on and so forth. So when we talk about four-sided shapes in geometry, we end up with this vast network of categories. We have the overarching category of quadrilateral, all four-sided figures. And then we have like trapezoids, where the sides are unequal and the, the um, angles are unequal. We have parallelograms, where the sides are equal and they are parallel to one another. We have rhombuses, which are parallelograms, only they also have... Um, Equal, equally long sides. We have rectangles, which are parallelograms insofar as all the sides are parallel, but they also only have 90 degree angles. And then we have squares, which are the uh, rectangles where all of the sides are equal. And what's important about this sort of categorical structure is that each element in the structure inherits all of the characteristics of the categories above it. So if, a, if all squares are rectangles, then what that means is everything that a rectangle has, a square has. If all rectangles are parallelograms, then everything that a rectangle has, or everything that a parallelogram has, a rectangle will also have. And if you say all parallelograms are quadrilaterals, then all the things that a quadrilateral has, a parallelogram will have. Do you see the way that this works? What we are saying in a categorical argument, what we are doing when, you, when we conduct categorical reasoning, is we are saying that there is this set of objects, this category, with this specific characteristic, and everything in this category, including subcategories, will have that characteristic. And as a result, you can nest these categories, three, four, even five deep. So all squares are rectangles, all rectangles are parallelograms, all parallelograms are quadrilaterals. Um, You can go at any level of that and say, because of the characteristics of the category above, we can make the definition of the category below more specific and easier to interpret. For Aristotle, he calls this a category and a specific difference or a genus and a specific difference. So what is a square? It is a rectangle. It has all of the characteristics of the rectangle, but it also has the specific difference of having all of its sides be the same length. What is a parallelogram? Well, it is a quadrilateral, a four-sided figure, so it has all of the characteristics of all quadrilaterals, but it also has the specific difference of having all of those sides be parallel. And that's all you need for a definition under this categorical structure, which is why we try and use this kind of reasoning as frequently as we possibly can. And in fact, if you study your science classes and you talk about genuses and species and kingdoms and phyla and so on and so forth, you will end up using the exact same reasoning because that's how Aristotle classified various living things. He will say, what is a human being? Well, it is an animal there is our category but it is also rational there is the specific difference what is man then the rational animal likewise if you want to distinguish men from say you know what are what about all of the beings That, like men, have fur and have warm blood and that have, like, give milk to their offspring from, like, mushrooms or, you know, crabs or birds or other various animals, then you say, okay, here is this new category, mammals. And the specific difference that separates mammals from the other vertebrates and other uh, categories above it is, well, they all have fur and they all have warm blood and they all give birth to live offspring and they all produce milk. That's a really easy way to organize the universe. And it's one that we use very frequently. Again, as frequently as we can, because sometimes this doesn't work so well. But many of our philosophers will use this kind of thinking to understand the world. They will understand it in terms of categories and specific differences. What is the overarching characteristics of the group that this thing belongs to and what are the specific characteristics that set this individual apart from the rest of the group? That's categorical reasoning. Now I want to stress that not all arguments that use categories are in fact deductive. Many are. Um, And in fact, we strive to have deductive arguments as as often as possible in philosophy because we do wanna guarantee the truth of our conclusions. Um, But that doesn't mean that that's always how it works. So take, for example, an argument that uses these categories, like um, let's say that an airplane, all airplanes can fly. Um, we can therefore go to to the next step and say, all right, I have a toy airplane. It is like an airplane, and therefore it should be able to fly. This sounds like a categorical argument. You're saying, you know, all airplanes can fly. That is the function of airplanes. That is one of the categorical characteristics of airplanes. But now I am saying there is this member of this subcategory of toy airplanes, and it can also fly because it is part of an air, a part of the category of airplanes. But most of us know that there are toy airplanes out there that don't fly. Which, you know, brings up real questions about, like, is it really an airplane then, or is it something more complicated? But notice that the original argument that I presented was not that it was an airplane. I did not try and get into, like, what is a definition of an airplane, but rather that it was like an airplane. It looks like an airplane, it has the same shape as an airplane, it's just a lot smaller. Therefore, it should also be able to fly. And this is not true, The fact of the matter is this airplane, this toy airplane, is similar to, but not the same as an airplane. And that means that we are now in ampliative territory. We are saying that it is more likely that this thing can fly, not that it must be able to. So this is categorical reasoning, but with an ampliative bent. And we'll come back to that word like in a moment like, give it a bit. Um, The second kind of argument that we're going to run into fairly frequently is what is frequently known as implicational reasoning. Um, And you can recognize an implicational argument very easily. It's got an if in it. Like the word if. I-F. If this, then that. And what's interesting about implicational reasoning is that while, like, not all arguments can be boiled down into implicational statements. Many can. Um, In fact, most of those categorical arguments we talked about just a moment ago cannot be rephrased to have an implication in them. So that statement, all men are mortal or all humans are mortal, can also be rephrased as, "If if X is human, then X is mortal. Like, it's the exact same rational statement. The meaning is identical, but the phrasing is very different. Um, Now, in an implicational statement, an implicational argument, the key is there is a hypothetical built into the premises. Um, There is, you know, a relationship between objects that is stressed and stated That doesn't necessarily have to imply the truth of or the existence of the objects involved. So we could say, for example, if God exists, then he is good, and have that as one of the premises in our argument. And that does not imply that God exists. What it means is that if he does, then he is good. If there is something called God, then it is a good thing. But the truth and falsity of that statement has nothing to do with the existence or, you know, the the truth or falsity of the characteristics. What it is implying is just the relationship. There is this clear stated relationship between A and B. To give you an example, um, this is one that, like, drove me nuts once upon a time. Um, A few years back, I was on a grand jury... And we had this particularly tricky set of cases, and some of them were ugly, and some of them were fine. Um, but we had one particular case where, like, this person was was being accused by the police of like this one particular very specific kind of crime, and one of the qualifications for that crime was they had been convicted for a prior offense, like they had done this before. And therefore, like, the penalties were greater and it was a new kind of crime altogether and so on and so forth. Um, And the, the district attorney who was talking to us, he passed around this paper which documented that this person had been convicted of this crime in the past. And all of these people in my jury were asking, can we see the evidence for that crime? Can we see the fact that Like, can we we verify for sure whether he did this thing? But what was being emphasized by the DA was, you don't need to know that. All you need to know is that he was convicted for this crime. If he is convicted for this crime and has done this other thing, then he is guilty of this new crime, and that's all you need to know. Whether or not he actually did it no longer matters. He was convicted, Therefore, he fulfills the criteria, he has this relationship, and you don't need to know anything more about it. And I was like, you know, I'm the philosopher, so of course I'm like, oh, I get it. So, you know, he was convicted, therefore, as long as he did this other thing, which was pretty guaranteed that he did this other thing, then we're done. Like, he's obviously guilty, he fulfills the criteria, he has done this other crime, and therefore he is guilty of it. Um, Period. The end. Case closed. You don't need to verify that God exists for if there is a God to then he is good to be a true statement. Um, That's what I want to stress here. Um, But keep an eye out for these implicational reason arguments as well because you will see a lot of them as we go along um, with our class. You will see a lot of these hypothetical if-then statements being brought out as important premises to the overarching argument. Um, but before we get off of the whole implicational reasoning, I want to sort of dip into the second video, the informal and fal- formal fallacies video. Um, because the example that they use there is one of the ways that implicational reasoning can go wrong. Um, see the important thing about implicational reasoning is that it always has these structure if x, then y. But the only thing that you can take away from that, technically there are two things, we'll get to the second one in a moment, um, is if X is true, then Y is true. X is true, therefore Y is true. The only way that you can properly use that implication is with the argument, if X then Y, premise two, X, conclusion, Y. But frequently you will see people try and flip it around you will see people say, if X, then Y, Y, therefore X. And that doesn't hold up at all. That is, as the, uh, the speaker in the second video emphasizes, that's affirming the consequent. That is a logical fallacy, a formal fallacy. It is not a valid way of interpreting the premises here. So the example that um, that speaker used was, you have this argument... Um, people who are allergic to peanut butter do not, um, or do not eat peanut butter. Um, this is a pretty, like a fairly couched, but still implicational argument. If you are allergic to peanut butter, then you do not eat peanut butter. If X, then Y. Then we have the affirmation of the consequent. So-and-so does not eat peanut butter. Therefore, we conclude that she must be allergic. But that's not necessarily true. There could be other reasons. Maybe she's never had peanut butter and isn't terribly eager to try. Uh, Maybe she lives in a place where she can't get peanut butter. Like, peanut butter is kind of a typically American thing. If you give it to foreigners, they react weirdly because they've never had it and have no experience of it. Or maybe she just doesn't like it. Maybe she just hates peanut butter and, as a result, does not eat it. Just because she doesn't eat it doesn't mean that she's allergic. Likewise, if you think of that argument from before, you know, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal, you can rephrase that, and people frequently do, to be all men are mortal, Socrates is mortal, therefore Socrates is a man. But that's not necessarily true. Just because he's mortal doesn't mean that he's necessarily a man. There are lots of things that are mortal that are not men. Socrates could be the name of my dog. Socrates could be a horse. Socrates could be a gnat. Socrates could be, you know, a plant. Any of those things can die. It's not just humans, but humans do all die. So... In the grander category of mortal things, like you can imagine it as a Venn diagram, where, you know, here is the big circle of all mortal things, and here is the smaller circle, the category of human beings. And all human beings in this circle are within the bigger circle of mortal things, but there are tons of mortal things outside of the smaller circle of human beings. Likewise, there is this big category of people who don't eat peanut butter, and there is a smaller category within that category of people who are allergic to peanut butter. But there are also all those people who have never had it, there are also all those people who can't get it, there are also all those people who just don't like it. All of those people do not like or do not eat peanut butter. Um, So there are two commonly made mistakes when you are doing implicational reasoning. Um, There is affirming the consequent, You know, if X, then Y, premise two, Y, therefore X. That's false. That is invalid. That is a bad form in your reasoning. You can also deny the antecedent, and you will see people do that as well. So let's say we have if X, then Y. If, you know, you are allergic to peanuts, then you do not eat peanut butter. You can say... I am not allergic to peanuts, like not, or x is not the case. If x then y, premise two, x is not the case, therefore y is not the case. I, or people who are allergic to peanut butter do not eat peanuts, I am not allergic to peanut butter, therefore I must eat peanuts. And that's not true either, as we, for the same exact reasons that we just talked about. Like if you say, You know, Socrates is not a man, then that doesn't necessarily mean that he isn't mortal. He could be a dog, he could be a horse, he could be a gnat, he could be a plant. All of those things are mortal. There are lots of things that Socrates could be besides being a man that would still be mortal. Likewise, I could not be allergic to peanut butter and still not eat peanuts because I could not like it or I could not have access to it, etc., etc., Um, So neither of those forms are valid. Um, The only two ways to validly interpret the modus ponens, the the implicational argument, is by confirming the antecedent. If x, then y, premise 2, x, premise or conclusion, y. Or you can do the contrapositive, which is the fancy way of saying you deny the consequent. If... Socrates is not mortal, then Socrates cannot be human. That follows necessarily. If you are outside of the bigger category, if you are outside of the category of mortal beings, then you cannot be inside the subcategory of human beings. Because as we've stated, all human beings are mortal. Likewise, if I am not eating, or if I am eating peanut butter, If I do, in fact, eat peanut butter, then you can deduce that I am not allergic to it. If this was a deductive argument. Because, again, obviously, like, people who are allergic to peanut butter can, in fact, eat peanuts. They just don't normally and shouldn't, and it's very much not recommended for obvious reasons. But if it were, in fact, deductively true, if people who are allergic to peanuts never eat peanut butter then you could say, I do eat peanuts, and therefore you can argue that I am not allergic to peanuts. Um, It's that simple. So when you approach these implicational arguments, when you see these if-then statements, these if-x-then-y, the only ways that you can get a valid argument out of it is if you affirm the antecedent. Modus ponens, if-x-then-y, premise two, x, therefore y, or if you deny the consequent, if you use the contrapositive. Um, if X, then Y, not Y, therefore not X. And I realize that this is like super difficult to grasp and, you know, me doing this as a, as a lecture without like an accompanying video component just makes it that much worse. I'm sorry about that. Um, but this is important stuff that you will run into not just in our class, but all the time. Um, feel free to call people out when they when they totally screw this up. Um, now the third kind of reasoning that I want to talk about, the third sort of subcategory of reasoning um, that's especially important for our class and is one that we are going to run into a lot and explicitly and it's going to be a huge deal when we do, is analogical reasoning. Analogical reasoning, like categorical reasoning, is very logically named. It is any argument that has an analogy in it. And by an analogy, I mean uh, like a positing of a similarity. Usually these arguments will have a like or an as in them. Um, And what's important about analogical reasoning is that it is relying on the strength of the comparison for the strength of the argument. So to give you one of the most famous examples in all of philosophical history, um, there is there was a philosopher who made what is frequently known as the watchmaker argument for the existence of God. And this is one that we'll be running into fairly frequently. Um, in this argument, the philosopher says, imagine that you are walking on a deserted island. Like, you land on an island that is that, as far as you know, has never been, you know, touched by human hands or human feet before. And you are walking through, like, the jungle on this island, and you... Sp- come across a pocket watch sitting on the ground next to the rocks and trees and plants and so on. Where did the watch come from? Like if you are sitting there saying here is this pocket watch and you ask yourself where did it come from you will necessarily conclude that somebody must have put it there or left it there or dropped it there or whatever the case may be and therefore you can conclude that this island has in fact been visited by humans in the past. Here is the evidence. As a result, this philosopher goes on to say, you can conclude that because our world, our universe, is far more complex than any watch, since you can look at who you are, since you can look at your physical body and see the complex interactions of like the blood and the brain and all of the other disparate organs, you can conclude that there must have been a maker, a god who created you. Now, the way that this argument is working is that, you know, you cannot expect complex like things like a watch to exist of themselves to come about through natural processes like you don't question the presence of rocks or trees or grass or coconuts or even like pigs or so on on this island you do not say to yourself oh it must be humans who introduced these various things on this island but when you see the watch you say that is a complex instrument with a clear defined function Therefore, it is evidence that humans must have been here. There is no possible explanation for this complex instrument to exist in this place unless it was brought here, invented, engineered by a creator, by a maker. Um, Therefore, since the universe, since our world, since human beings and other animals are so much more complex than a watch we can conclude that there is a similarity between the world and the watch. and there must also be a similarity in the creators, the people who made the watch and the being that made the world. Therefore our philosopher include or concludes, there is a God and an intelligent God, a maker God. Um, but what I want to stress, This is an analogical argument. Um, The world is complex like a watch. Watches have makers, therefore the world must have a maker. That's the basic, like most run-down version of this argument. But all of it rests on that first premise, the world is like a watch. And as a result, this argument is only as strong as that comparison. It is only as strong as the world is, in fact, like a watch. Um, And one of our philosophers, David Hume, who we'll be reading much later in the semester, will go to town on this argument. He will absolutely stress that the world is not like a watch at all. Like, he'll be using a different sort of, like, details... But the basic argument will be the same. Now, the one other thing that I want to stress about this, like the fact that, you know, again, the argument is itself only as strong as the strength of the comparison means that we're going to, first off, be questioning the strength of the comparison every time we see one of these analogical arguments. Like, you should be questioning to yourself how much is the world like a watch when this argument is presented. You should absolutely be saying to yourself, well, the world really isn't all that much like a watch. Like, it is complex like a watch. He has that right, and therefore there is, you know, some strength to this argument. But at the same time, it's complex in radically different ways. Um, It's like the complexity of the human organism is a completely different experience from the complexity of an obviously artificial thing like a watch. Um, So, you know, there is strength to this argument, but it is only so far that that strength can be pushed. Uh, But on the other hand, I want to stress that because it rests on the strength of the comparison and because the comparison is to some degree subjectively strong... All analogical arguments, all in arguments that have this analogy in them, this the similarity, this identification of like or as, um, that means that they're also always going to be ampliative. You cannot have a deductive analogical argument. It is not possible. Um, the fact that we are saying that they are similar is already positing that we are out of the realm of binaries, of trues and falses, of possibles and impossibles, we are going to be talking about probability here. We cannot guarantee the strength of this argument the way that we can with some categorical arguments, and some implicational arguments for that matter. Um, Implicational and categorical arguments can be either deductive or ampliative depending on what you see in them. All arguments that are analogical will be ampliative, and there's no way to avoid that. Now, to move on to the second argument that is examined in that or in that video on formal and informal fallacies, the example of the informal fallacy, Um, I actually want to spend a fairly substantial amount of time talking about informal fallacies um, for a variety of reasons. For one, you're only going to run into formal fallacies so often, Um, Like, you need to be a fairly trained philosopher in order to even recognize them in most cases. Um, Like, you will see people, especially with those if-then statements, um, using affirming the consequent or denying the antecedent to come to some pretty bogus results. Um, But generally speaking, you're not going to see a lot of people making, like, bad formal arguments. Um, What you will see, however, are tons and tons of, and tons of informal fallacies um, like all over the place. Um, so first off, I want to sort of introduce like a watch program for that. Like this is a this is sort of a one-off assignment. I, I'm not going to be able to do this every year for fairly obvious reasons. Um, but this year I'm going to actually issue bounties, extra credit bounties on informal fallacies. Um, because probably the the time of our lives that we will run into informal fallacies the most is during presidential elections. Like, I'm not even going to pretend like, you know, that's not the case. But literally, every time it gets close to November, whether it's, you know, your local politics or the midterm elections for Congress, and definitely, definitely, definitely the president, um, you will see politicians making the most bullshit arguments all day long. Um, like, you will not be able to avoid it. They, they will bombard you with bad argumentation. Um, because this stuff does take. Informal fallacies are convincing in their own right. They shouldn't be. They are very rarely relevant to our arguments, but nonetheless, all the time you're going to see this stuff. Um, so as we walk through these formal these informal fallacies, I am going to give you pol- political examples. like there's just too many of them and they're too good to ignore. Um, some of them you're probably already familiar with. Like I want you to be familiar with them. Um, but keep in mind like any suggestion that I make on this one, you can also go out and find examples of these informal fallacies and bring them back to me. and I will give you one point on a major assignment for everyone that you track down and bring in. Um, like I'll start with the really weighty assignments like the research paper and so on, but mostly I'm just going to keep a running tally of how many of them you've brought in and I will just add those points whenever I, whenever like it becomes relevant. Um, so just like as a standing assignment in this class, as a standing challenge to all of you, like just email them to me. Um, send me a small like whatever it is either a video or like a clip from an advertisement or like a political broadcast or a newspaper article in which somebody is making like a particularly bad uh, fallacy in a quote Um, however you want to do it like whatever it is that you find that has this sort of bad argumentation on it um, take a picture or send me a link or whatever and write, up, write me, like, about a one-paragraph description of what is what is being said, what is being implied here, and how it's garbage reasoning. Um, if you can do that, you will just get those points. And absolutely, you will be able to find tons of them. Like, if you go looking for them, God help you. You will get dozens. Um, so, like, find some good ones, write them up, send them to me, because I keep using these as examples in future classes, um, as we'll see in a moment. Um, But I want to walk through some of the especially egregious informal fallacies that you will run into on a regular basis. Um, But let's start with the one in the video, equivocation. Um, The example that our speaker uses is premise one, um, nothing that is light can be dark. Premise two, a feather is light, therefore premise or conclusion, feathers cannot be dark. And the obvious, like, problem with this argument is that we are equivocating the use of the word light. Um, In one, in the first premise, we are talking about light things in terms of their um, color, that they cannot be dark, a thing that is light cannot be dark. But in the other premise, that all feathers are light, we are actually talking about their weight. Um, Like, a light thing cannot be heavy. So, as our speaker obviously points out, um, we are changing the meaning of the word between the two premises, and therefore, even though it looks like, you know, all X are Y, something is not X, therefore something is not Y. In fact, what we're saying is all X are Y, this W is not Y or is not Z, therefore, like, all, it, it cannot be Y. Um, and it just doesn't hold up. It doesn't make sense. One of the examples that, like, you will run into on a regular basis nowadays when it comes to equivocation is the term fake news. Um, and I know that I'm already, like, over my head. Surprise, we're going to be talking about, like, some fairly controversial subjects right here, but I am merely looking at, at them in terms of their logical value. Um, so please, like, lower your your angry hand-waving, and please do not attack me in person. Um, I am only interested in these as a nonpartisan observer of logical reasoning and failure to reason logically. Um, And fake news is one of those that we like to equivocate. Um, Because back in the 2016 election, when everybody was freaking out about fake news initially, and the term was initially coined, the thinking, like the reasoning for this, was because there was, in fact bad information circulating online. There were lies circulating online. Um, there that was the whole scandal where like there were Russian bots who were, you know, disseminating bad propagandistic information, um, stuff that was not true. Primarily about like the Hillary Clinton campaign and you know everything that was going on. Um, so Democrats cried foul. They said, hey, this is fake news. It is untrue. It is something, it is a statement that is being, you know, deliberately disseminated for the purposes of deceiving us. Um, That's what fake news is. But Republicans jumped on this and started using the term in a very different way. So when Donald Trump talks about fake news, what he is usually talking about is bias, Um, He says, you know, the New York Times says something and it is fake news or the CNN says something and it is fake news. Um, But it is not fake news in the same way that like the Russian propagandizing bots were disseminating fake news. It is not something untrue that is being circulated. It is a true thing that is being distorted, something biased Um, like the New York Times and CNN and most of the you know, liberal mainstream media does have a liberal slant to it. Uh, but what that means is that the slant is what they report and how they report it. Um, so, for example, like the main, one of the obvious differences between this is, you know, back when the Russian bots were circulating information, there was this scandal about like Hillary Clinton keeping like a child pornography ring in the basement of a pizza parlor. Um, and this guy shows up to the pizza parlor with an ak-47 demands to be shown the basement and discovers that this pizza parlor doesn't even have a basement Um, this is fake news because it is untrue it does not line up with reality by contrast when cnn reports that like donald trump said something stupid in a press conference um what they are doing is not saying something untrue donald trump said the thing in the press conference what they are saying is it was stupid and that is slant that is bias that is opinion that is a liberal um manipulation of the bare minimum facts of what was actually said now whether or not it's true or false that's another debate like whether or not something that somebody said is stupid is admittedly not the purview of you know like the media to tell us in many cases um so you know that bias may be warranted or unwarranted according to your opinions um but what i want to stress is that there's a big difference between fake news as it existed you know in the 2016 election because of bad information being spread and fake news in the sense of slant or bias or you know preferential treatment um keep that in mind, especially as you are wandering over the internet trying to find examples of various fallacies. And P.S. if you can find an example of an informal fallacy being conducted by a news organization, you are more than welcome to submit that as well. All things are fair game in this particular case. Um, So that's the first informal fallacy that I want to talk about, equivocation, using the same word in two radically different senses. and you know the the sort of rhetorical advantage of using the same word in an ambiguous context or using the same word in a convoluted um, and unexplained way is that you can very much either cast doubt on the original use of the term, like you can discredit um the original way that it was used or you can sort of shift its meaning and shift attention away from the original issue so to use another example of equivocation um in the past year like after the george floyd killing um there was a lot of discussion about defunding the police Um, the rallying cry of the black lives matter movement for a pretty solid period of time was defund the police um And this was another example of equivocation, because a lot of people on both sides jumped on this phrase, defund the police, and twisted it to mean something that it originally did not mean. Um, Now... As to what it actually initially meant there is some question about that. My understanding is that liberals and the Black Lives Matter movement were calling for a movement of funds away from police forces to other organizations and institutions. Um, You know community care centers and mental health professionals and people who could like take defuse a situation without showing up at the door with a gun. Um, But most frequently when republicans talked about this defund a police call they talked about it as though liberals wanted to take all the money from all the police, abolish the police force entirely, and leave only anarchy in its wake. Um, And that was an equivocation. That was an attempt to discredit the original term by reducing it to its weakest and most extreme form. Um, It was a manipulation of the term, and therefore it caused everyone to have like this obligation to understand to reinterpret to rephrase what they meant and as a result like for a good month there you had like people posting all the time you know on the one side like defunding the police is a terrible idea we will only end up with like anarchy and on the other side people saying no here's what I mean by defunding the police and in some cases it was get rid of the police force and in some cases it was you know just like reduce funds and not abolish it entirely or in some cases it was like take the funds away and move them in all these different organizations Um, now all of a sudden the word is confused and it's delegitimized and it's very difficult to talk about it and so the liberal agenda was very much sidetracked on that one Um, But that actually brings us to the next interesting informal fallacy that you're going to run across. Um, On the Texas state site, it's called Straw Person. Frequently it is, once again, known as Straw Man because, you know, like patriarchy and such. Um, a straw person argument is presenting the case of your opposition in its weakest form, rather than giving them the benefit of the doubt, the like advantage of the best form of their argument. Um, and this whole defund the police argument is very much in a straw person approach. Um, most Republicans who were arguing against liberals at this point in time were saying defunding the police means anarchy it is a radical extreme removal of funds from the police forces in various parts of the country. Um, and therefore it should absolutely, no question be rejected because it's just dumb and bad and here are all the bad things that could happen. But again, while some liberals and Democrats and Black Lives Matter activists were in fact arguing for that, they were fairly rare and they were fairly or very much in the minority. Um, So to argue this would be to basically reduce a complex situation with a lot of different facets to one bad argument. And you will see this a lot as well. Um, So, for example, like during the Trump election back in 2016, he came under a lot of fire because of the border wall. Um, His campaign promised to construct this wall that was going to span, like, the entire border between Mexico and America. Um, and it became this sort of talking point. Um, but more importantly, it became this sort of obvious symbolic indication that Trump was racist, um... Now, whether or not Trump is racist it is not for me to weigh in on here. Like, that's not my objective. Again, I'm trying to be nonpartisan as much as possible, which is why I'm going to be sympathetic to the Republicans and to Trump on this particular example. But that is another example of a straw person argumentation. If you come at, we are going to erect this wall between Mexico and America because, you know immigrants are coming into the country illegally and we have to you know provide for their health care and we have to provide for their well-being and we have to provide infrastructure and we have to provide all these services for them um and they are here illegally they are in fact breaking the law we are trying to enforce the law with this action and democrats turn around to you are a racist pig that is a straw person argumentation um, we are not giving him the ben of the benefit of the doubt. There is a better argument that is being made here that we are ignoring in, for the sake of making this seem inflammatory, hyperbolized, and despicable, um, which is unfair. Straw persons are conducted by everybody; it's a thing. Um, but keep an eye out for them. Look instead for the best form of the argument. Um, look instead for the most articulated form of the argument. And you will see straw persons all over the place. Like when Bernie Sanders campaigns, you will see people calling him a communist. That's a straw person argument. When Donald Trump talks about, you know, immigration, people call him a racist. That's a straw person argument. Um, They're all over the place. But the other side of this, and again, we are sort of transitioning naturally, and I want to kind of stress, a lot of these different informal fallacies are very much mixed, and you can see multiple fallacies being committed with a single argument, um, is the ad hominem. An ad hominem is an argument that does not actually address the argument that is being presented. Instead, it is an attack on the person making the argument. Ad hominem is the fancy Latin term for against the man. Again, it's patriarchal. What a surprise. Um, so when you turn your attention from what are the actual advantages of building a border wall to Donald Trump is a racist asshole, you are making an ad hominem argument. It doesn't matter whether Donald Trump is a racist asshole and as regards whether this policy is a good one or a bad one. Um, and frequently we do boil down our politics to attacks and accusations and invectives um if there is any formal or informal fallacy on this list that you're going to see more than any other it will probably be the ad hominem fallacy um it is rampant in politics today um like During the 2016 election, when you've got Donald Trump and Hillary attacking one each each other, you have just all the time. You've got Hillary saying things like, "Do you want Trump being the president that your children see? Um, He is a bad person. He is a racist. He is a misogynist. He is just a terrible individual," and not actually addressing any of the policies that Donald Trump was proposing. Likewise, when Donald Trump responds to Hillary, you get all these attacks on, you know, she's just this radical feminist with all these absurd ideas. and she's part of the liberal agenda, and, you know, she's a giant tree hugger and a pacifist, and she's going to get us all killed, like, this is just insulting. This is just attacking each other, the people. Um, And honestly, I expect that, you know, it's hard to see past this reasoning. Um, Like, these attacks are in fact based in the policy, but they are based in policy that is distorted and screwy and wrong. It is straw person policy, not actual policy. Um, So you know, the fact of the matter is bad people can have good ideas. Bad people can make good legislation. Um, United States politics is full of examples of bad people doing good things when they get to office for whatever reason they have in mind. Um, like I think of Andrew Jackson's attack on the bank. There are advantages of, you know, this, wild shoot from the hip, drunken idiot, like charging against this financial institution that had become corrupt and bloated and problematic. Um, like, bad people do good things. It happens. It could be by accident, it could be because of political expedience. Who knows? Um there has been a lot of question about Bill Clinton, whether or not he is a good person or a bad person. There's the the whole investigation into his sex scandal, and yet he ran our country during one of the most profitable times in its history. Um, like, it's not that cut and dry. Um, whether or not a person is terrible or a bad person or has a bad home life or whatever does not mean that they will not make good decisions about the country. That maybe their policies are the one that we need or the ones that we need the most. Um, likewise, good people do bad things. They make mistakes. They make bad choices. It happens. Um, so attacking the person is sort of inappropriate to the entire conversation. You should be attacking their policies. Why shouldn't they work? Why aren't they best right now? What is the problem with them? Um, but ad hominem also runs deeper than just like personal attacks from candidate to candidate or personal attacks from like people in the media against candidates or vice versa or whatever. Per... Ad hominem can also sort of boil into this much deeper, much more pernicious fallacy, frequently known as poisoning the well. Um, And to give you an example of this, think of the way that you think about the various political parties today. Um, Like think of the names that they are called, the terms that you associate with them. Um, like if you talk with your friends about Republicans and you are not yourself Republican, you will probably talk about them as a bunch of like gun-loving proto-Nazis or fascists, they're all bigots and they all hate like black people and they're anti-intellectual and they're dumb and they're hicks and they're they're just like terrible in all of these different ways and they're they're bigots and they hate immigrants and you know, there's just so much wrong with them. Um, but on the flip side, if you are a Republican and you talk with your friends about the Democratic Party, you're probably likely to say that they're a bunch of liberal snowflakes and SJWs and they're a bunch of tree huggers and, you know, they, they have no concept of reality. They do not understand how the world works. Um, this is deeper than just mere attacks. This is this whole cultural assumption made about these different political parties um, poisoning the well is more than just attacking the person for that person's sake it is attacking the the person and everything associated with that person to make it so you will never trust that person again um, that's why it's called poisoning the well if the well is poisoned it is no longer safe to drink and as a result nobody will go back to that well um and you will see this all the time again um when Hillary says that Trump is a racist she is not just insulting Trump she is also saying do not trust anything he says because he has ulterior motives likewise when Trump was saying that Hillary is a liar because of that whole email scandal he is saying you cannot trust Hillary. She is someone who who will lie to you, and therefore everything she says has to be questioned and doubted and reevaluated. Likewise, when Democrats print, paint Republicans as Nazis and gun nuts and you know extremely violent people, they are saying that party is wretched. It is wrong. It is poisoned. And if you trust them, then you are a bad person. And so it goes with the other side, calling the liberals, you know, snowflakes and tree huggers. It's saying, if you join the Democrats, you are weak and idealistic and do not have an appropriate understanding of the way that the world works. Um, That's how poisoning the well happens. Um, And I know that this is weird, but there's another level to this as well. Um, As much as, you know each of these parties poisoning the well of the other party like seems like a kind of a bad and sort of mean thing to do um and therefore would actually turn a lot of people away from these these parties like if you know the republican party is attacking the liberals all the time you would think that some people would get sick of it that they would be like oh i'm disgusted with my own party and i refuse to vote likewise if both parties are poisoned Like, if nobody trusts Republicans because of all the bad things that they do, and nobody trusts Democrats because of all the bad things they do, now you have a situation where people are not going to the polls to vote. Um, And that is also, while you might think, like, you know, not voting in this situation is, you know, the best solution to a bunch of parties that are terrible and completely corrupt and very wrong, it actually serves the advantage of the status quo. Um, If people don't vote, whoever the frontrunner is, is likely to win. Um, If people don't vote, the incumbent is likely to carry the day. Um, So if people don't vote, if you feel like you cannot get involved in the political process, That actually is frequently an advantage to one or the other candidate, and sometimes it is to the advantage of candidates to get down and dirty, to start attacking people, to poison both wells, and to make it seem like everyone is wrong, because if that keeps people from getting out to vote, sometimes that candidate can win part of the reason why Trump successfully won the 2016 election was because by the end of the election or the campaign, many Democrats were disillusioned with Hillary and her policies. Trump had successfully poisoned both wells. Like they were definitely not going to get out and vote for Trump. They thought Trump was like the worst thing ever, but they did not feel strongly enough about the Democrats to get out the door and vote. Whereas Trump supporters were confident and wanted to vote for Trump and wanted to support him and he got more people out the door, and therefore he won the election. Um, sometimes making everyone upset and grossed out by what's going on can actually be a political strategy in its own right. Um, but we have no time to get into the other details of like finer political reasoning and this fancy stuff. There are a couple more fallacies I want to talk about, and then I want to talk about some of the other basics of like how philosophy is going to work in the time that we have left. Um, so the two that I definitely want to talk about um, that, are, that remain on the informal fallacies list, like the rest I strongly encourage you to read and sort of look for them as well when you're poking around online, um, the two that I do want to focus on are the red herring and the slippery slope. Um, a red herring has, the red herring has gotten very popular in the last four years, like all the time I'm seeing red herring, um, although we frequently call it something else. Um, A red herring in mystery novels, like this is where the term originates from, is a a clue that actually doesn't have anything to do with the mystery. Like it is a distraction. And I believe it's because there was, in fact, a red herring in one of the early mystery novels and it just kind of got out of hand. Um, Hilariously, like people will reference this now. Like you will actually find red herrings in all sorts of mystery novels because they're like poking fun. Um, But the idea of a red herring is that it's a distraction. Um, it is not, in fact, relevant to the conversation happening. Um, and we frequently talk about this now as whataboutism. Um, like, and again, everybody does this. Like, on the right during the 2016 election, you know, Trump would be asked a question about his campaign funds, or about his charity, or about corruption, or whether he was working with Russia, and he would respond, well, what about Hillary and all of her, the, all of those emails? Or what about Benghazi? Or what about anything that distracts attention from the bad things that I have done, and instead focus on the bad things that my opponent has done? And Hillary would totally do the same thing. They would ask her about Benghazi, or they'd ask her about the emails, and her response would be, but... It doesn't matter because look at all the bad things that Trump has done. What about Trump? What about his corruption scandal? What about his, you know, the, the whole scandal with, like, um, the, the um, pornography star? Like, what about all of those bad things? Who cares what I have done? Um, and what I want to stress is don't get distracted. Like, anytime somebody uses one of these what about arguments, it doesn't matter. Um, this is also frequently known as tu quoque. Um, which is basically the Latin form of what about, or what about ism, um, what about the other person? You also have done this. Um, It doesn't matter. Like if we're talking about, you know, Trump's pornography scandal, then we're talking about Trump's pornography scandal and not Hillary's emails. We'll deal with that in its own time. If we were talking about Hillary's emails and she distracts attention to Trump's record on racism, then that's another distraction. We were talking about your emails. Let's resolve this right now. Um, But more frequently, nothing does get resolved because the distraction ends up sort of like stalemating the argument. Um, And that's very much a problem. Um, So be alert for those red herrings. You will see them all the time. I will be shocked if this election is not packed full of red herrings. You know, Biden ignoring his policies because he'll be like, well, Trump is the worst and therefore vote for me. And Trump will say exactly the same things like... Uh, Who cares about what I've done, you know, liberal agenda, deep state, fake news, etc. But the other one that I want to stress is the slippery slope. Because the slippery slope has gotten more complicated in, like, the last year. Um, Slippery slope arguments operate under the sort of structure that um, if this one thing happens, then the second thing will follow, and then this third thing will happen, and then this fourth thing, and this fifth thing, and this sixth thing, and then it will be bad for whatever reason. Um, my favorite example is back from the 90s when there was like the discussion about um, gay marriage and whether or not uh homosexual should have the right to become married. And obviously like eventually the legislation passed, Supreme Court said so, all is well. Um, but back in that time, Republicans would frequently structure the argument like, if we allow gay people to marry, then this will erode the institution of marriage as a whole. And if it erodes the institution of marriage as a whole, then it means that people will be less apt to take marriage seriously and to take their responsibilities in the family seriously. And if they take their relationships less seriously and their responsibilities in the family less seriously, then we'll be raising a generation of children who are morally like wrong or misinformed. And if we raise a generation of children that are morally misinformed, then one day they will grow up and they will be the leaders of our country and they will destroy this country that we've built. In short, if we let gay people marry, anarchy. Like, there are lots of intermediary steps, and the intermediary steps are the key features of a slippery slope argument. But what it basically boils down to, here is, you know gay marriage, what will what we are actually discussing now, and the conclusion of gay marriage will be complete destruction of everything that we know and love and everyone will die and the country will be destroyed in anarchy. And it's absurd. The way that a slippery slope argument works, the way that it compels people, the way that it sounds convincing, is because each of the individual links in the argument, like gay people marrying erodes the institution of marriage as a religious thing, that sounds fairly reasonable. Like, that's a fairly good argument, an ampliative argument, um, but a decent one. But the trouble is, then there's another argument. If we erode the institution of marriage then people will take relationships less seriously. And yeah, you can see why there might be a connection there. And you might see a connection between, you know, relationships being taken less seriously and children being, you know, ignored or deprioritized and therefore they get the bad moral education and therefore they grow up and they cause problems. You can see each individual link, but when you put them all together, it's like here's one okay but pretty weak argument Relying on another okay and pretty weak argument, relying on another okay and pretty weak argument, and relying on another okay and pretty weak argument, relying on another okay and pretty weak argument. And as a result, the argument as a whole is garbage. Like, there is very little to support that allowing gay marriage will cause anarchy. Uh, like, we have anarchy now, in some degree, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't gay marriage that caused it. There are lots of factors to where we are now and why things are so ugly. At the very least, you can't blame gay people for coronavirus. Um, at the very least. Um, but suffice it to say that it's Slippery Slope argument... As much as, like, this sort of reasoning, this sort of, like, first this will happen, then 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 ultimate destruction, um, kind of super, or is pretty easy to read as a bad argument, it's increasingly become more complicated. um, Because now it's frequently framed as these are the links in a chain that is being hidden or disguised or distracted from and this is how we get into conspiracy theory territory. Um, and I want to stress, I have not found the silver bullet for beating conspiracy theories. Like, it's it's too new, as far as I can tell. Like, don't get me wrong, there have been conspiracy theories forever. Like, you, you hang around at the turn of the century, like 1900, 1910, you get into, like, Illuminati and Mason, or the... the Um, freemason conspiracy theories and they're just as weird and bonkers there as you know the contemporary conspiracy theories about like coronavirus or the deep state or QAnon crap or anything like that um but what i want to stress is they've gotten way more popular in the last like six to eight months i mean I, I I don't know how to express this because I imagine you were seeing it too. like you are also alive and aware and on the internet, and you were probably also dealing with relatives who you know formerly politically disengaged are now railing about like you know the effort to bury Trump's arguments and you know like the deep state and the the sex trafficking by Democrats and like I don't even know. Um, but what I want to stress here is that every conspiracy theory that you're running into, every way that I've like, every conversation I've had about conspiracy theories is basically boiled down to a slippery slope argument. It's a little different um, because a slippery slope argument implies a chain of causality that just goes on forever, and all of the links involved are kind of weak. Whereas a conspiracy theory is more like connecting the dots when the dots are not in any likely way connected. It's like, well, you know, I don't trust what the authorities are telling me about coronavirus because I know that Bill Gates has been deliberately siphoning funds into a vaccine program while, like, destroying efforts of others to make vaccines. And, because Bill Gates has expressed on many occasions his liberal agenda, he is clearly opposed to Trump because of this one meeting they had where, like, Bill Gates was really short with him about something, or because of something that Bill Gates said in one of his earlier articles that were an interview View, and because bill gates is you know and you you have all of these little points of data all over the place things that are completely unrelated that are being tied together into this sort of grand narrative of how the world actually looks and All of this, at the very least, is bad ampliative arguments. And there are lots of other fallacies going on here. Like, at the very least, we have a questionable cause. um, Like, are we sure that this was caused by that? Um, What is frequently known in Latin circles as post hoc ergo propter hoc. um, After, therefore, because of. Um, You get unwarranted generalizations. You get tons and tons of informal fallacies being committed all at the same time. and yet this stuff is super compelling to so many people. And again, like, I can't even recommend that you argue with them because it will frequently turn your social media into a giant shit show and you will very rarely, if ever, change their minds. Although it is often good to sort of, like, fight it just so other people don't get sort of sucked into this nexus of stupidity and bad reasoning. Um, so... What I want to stress is that most of these conspiracy theories involve a lot of these informal fallacies and I want to stress to you that you should know these. You should know what a good argument and a bad argument looks like. You should know how or what are the steps, the premises that bring us to a conclusion and every one of them is subject to analysis and examination. A good argument has strong likely premises building to a conclusion that necessarily or likely follows from those premises. Whereas most of the trafficking conspiracy theories today, most of the misinformation going on in the internet has this sort of appearance of, you know, these distantly connected points of data that really do not have any causal connection whatsoever but you know with if you squint at them enough, it could imply something really horrible is happening. Um, but all of that is tenuous. Every link in the chain is weak. Um, every step of this process has a lot of doubt attached to it. Um, do not think that just because, you know, X is happening and Y is happening, that X and Y are connected. That's the questionable cause. Do not think that just because it might make sense for X to lead to Y and Y to lead to Z and Z to lead to W and W to lead to B and B to lead to A and A to lead to C, that because X therefore C. Like, that also does not make sense. Um, And then you get into the issue of authority and, like, which news sources are trustworthy and which ones are bad. Like, I expect that you'll listen to this lecture and have questions. I want you to, in all honesty. Like, as much as my job is to talk philosophy, philosophy and politics are intimately connected. And we get upset about politics, not for dumb reasons. We get upset about politics because politics express what we believe about the world, It expresses our ethics, what we think we should do. Um, And that's not a bad thing. Like, getting worked up about this stuff is important. Um, Getting upset and having disagreements and discussing this stuff where, you know, we can debate civilly is super important. Um, What I want to stress is not, you know, conclude one way or the other, but think about what you are saying, and what you are posting, and what you are disseminating, and what other people are seeing from you. Evaluate the information you're looking at, look at your sources, look at the chains of connections, do your research, and do not propagate bad information or bad argumentation. Do not commit fallacies, is what I want to stress. And I know that we live in a world where fallacies are effective you know donald trump has been committing fallacies ever since he got into office and he has proved to be a virtuoso with them and honestly you know obama committed his fair share of fallacies in his time as well but what i am most worried about politically speaking has very little to do with republican platforms or democratic platforms like i think both sides have good arguments i think both sides have fundamentally neutral ideals in a lot of ways, although there are some issues that I very much lean one way or the other on. Like, I definitely tend to favor uh, Democrat social policies, while I do tend to like uh, Republicans' promises of smaller government overreach. Um, But I am scared that the discourse, the conversation that is being had, the way that we talk about politics has turned into a giant nightmare of fallacy and nonsense. Um, That's what I'm fighting against, personally. Like, as much as, you know, there are definitely some agents and some parties and some politicians who are more guilty of it than others, and I definitely oppose them more, My issue isn't with their policy so much as how they communicate it, how they defend it, how they oppose other people, how they will turn the platform that they have into a brainwashing machine, into an opportunity to poison all wells, destroy our faith in intellectual discourse, destroy our faith in the political system altogether, and seek simple solutions to complex problems. Um, That's what scares me most. Um, So if there is a takeaway from this long convoluted lecture about argumentation and fallacies, the first is obviously we're going to be talking about this in class, keep attentive, like watch out for analogical and categorical arguments and watch out for fallacies and you know call out philosophers when they make mistakes, but also like go and be better thinkers. Um, Use this information. Go back to the Texas State page often. Um, Watch some of the other videos on the Wireless Philosophy page. They have pages on uh, red herrings or on begging the question or on false analogies or on slippery slope or straw persons or any number of those things. Um, And if you can't find it on Wireless Philosophy, look for it because tons of people online are talking about the way that discourse is changing in the wake of the internet, and in the wake of the 2016 election, and in the wake of a new political orientation. Um, Find out what a good argument looks like, and then don't tolerate anything less. Um, Do not settle for bullshit, in short. Do not have patience for people who are trying to deceive you, or for people who are trying to mislead you, or, peop- who are pe- or people who are trying to sp- draw this net of illusion between you and reality. Who are trying to shape reality into the way that they want to see it rather than the way that it actually is. Um, be careful, considerate, and incisive thinkers. Look for proofs look for good argumentation, look for likely cases, and do not tolerate just conspiratorial nonsense. Do not settle for angry invectives and attacks and even like friendly words with a firm handshake. Um, Don't necessarily distrust everyone, but look for their credentials and don't tolerate anything less than good credentials. Anyway, like I said, by all means, let's talk about this stuff. Um, In the chat this coming week, absolutely, ask me about reliable news sources. Ask me about fake news. Ask me about any of these fallacies that we've discussed. Heck, bring up the political issues that we are dealing with, and I will help you navigate them. Um, Ask questions about why Republicans and Democrats act or behave in certain ways, why they believe certain things. Um, I position myself as a moderate for the sake of this class, and I will try and defend, as I said, the best version of the argument whenever I am able to see it. I will not give you a straw person argument, even though I may have my biases and my preferences on this one. Um, And because we are all walking into what is probably going to be, like, one of the most egregiously fallacious election years on record. um, If you have questions about what a given candidate is talking about or what a certain policy implies or what, you know, anything in this situation means, I would rather have you get the whole story and vote in an informed way than to pretend like, you know, philosophy is this, you know, ivory tower subject matter that we don't need to connect to our actual lives and the stuff that we're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. Um, I don't want to get like 100% sidetracked on that, so you know it might be wiser to just email me privately if you have questions about this stuff um, and don't want to you know derail the entire class for a good 10-15 minutes, um, especially since we're only going to have so much time together. Um, but I do want to confront this stuff. I do want to talk about it. Um, I don't want to pretend like it's irrelevant or disconnected, um, especially because it's so real. Like, you guys have to figure this out. You will all be in the polling booth at, in November, or if you are not, it'll be because you choose not to participate. Um, and I want you to, I want to help make you in, make an informed decision. Um, I want you to be equipped um, to protect yourself against bad arguments and to be able to make and recognize good ones. Um, So anyway, with that fairly grim uh, discussion in place, I hope that you have a good week, and I look forward to talking to you on Wednesday, and I look forward to doing philosophy with you in the future. Um, For next week, we are reading Plato. Um, We will only read the first half of the Euthyphro, and the lecture that you will listen to will go in great detail about what we're dealing with in Plato. Um, so be sure to listen to that next week and we will talk about it more in our discord session. Good luck and have a good week.